I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Rory and Kid here from the award-winning podcast, This Paranormal Life. Every week we investigate a paranormal story and decide if it's real or a hoax. Like the time a guy claimed he punched Bigfoot. Or when a UFO showed up at a football game in front of thousands of people. Each episode has sound effects, music, and storytelling that feels so real, you'll never sleep again. You will. Stop it. You're going to scare away new listeners. Check out This Paranormal Life every Tuesday, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, regular ICMAP listener tuning in for the uh, next episode in the series. We have had to bump the schedule slightly, so technically, uh, this is not episode 10. This is episode mini. Um, Still a long one, still a very interesting one, still a very good-looking one. We hope you enjoy. We're back on track for next week. Um, In the meantime, enjoy. By the way, if you enjoyed this Minnesota, you can get over 100 more on (laughs) icmap.co.uk. 100 more. Go on. Have a look. dream, I see before me a forest of crucifixes, which gradually turn into trees. At first there appears to be dew or rain dripping from the branches, but as I approach I realize it's blood. Suddenly the whole forest begins to writhe, the trees stark and erect ooze blood. A man goes to each tree catching the blood in a cup. When his cup is full he approaches me drink, he says, but I am unable to move. Hello and welcome back to another Minnesota. Oh, we are here, Ben. You're wearing a jazzy t-shirt. Yeah, well, for a change. For a change. Danny, you're wearing another t-shirt. I'm wearing a shirt shirt, a very famous shirt worn by uh, Tom Norris. I thought it looked familiar. (laughs) And we're back for episode number 79. We've nearly reached the 8-0. The elusive big 8-0. And speaking of things that are uh, unfamiliar, Mm. no, you said familiar, right? The shirt, shirt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Unfamiliar. I've spotted a little beak seeping out of your shirt. Seeping out of my shirt. Yeah, a new yeah. tattoo. Uh, Look at that. Casper the Cormorant. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It looks like he's battling it. the dragon. The dragon? Yeah, it's all go. It's all. Looks like a fight. It's a ship there. Lighthouse there. A tiger and a dragon. It's very Lord of the Rings. <laughs> no, it doesn't, Dad. There's a little joke Dan's got where he says everything looks like Lord of the Rings. But yes, we are back once again with a big case. And I, I hope you're not listening to this, guys, when you're having a having a bath. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Topical. Topical. Why? Because this week, Tom, it's only the case of the acid bath murderer. Oh, shit. I just went, it's icky you listen to, listen to murder when you're people, naked. A lot of people do. Yeah, you... Um, go on. A lot of people listen to us in the bath. Do they? Yeah. 
You sure? Yeah. 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 A lot of people listen to us when they're at work, is what I gather. A lot of people listen to us when they're at work. A lot of people listen to us when they're commuting or driving. Mm. Um, Hiking. Walks in the countryside. I would hate to listen to a true crime podcast whilst walking in the dark in the countryside. Was it dark? Just, you know, our night in the countryside. Some people do it. Not many people. No. But, yeah, some people might. My usual time, it must usually commuting or driving. Yeah. For doing research, to be fair, I do listen to it most times, so... Mm. But not in the dark in the countryside. Well, if you are having a bath this week and you've tuned in, I hope it's just right because some of the baths I'm going to talk about this week... A little bit too hot. Yeah. Oh! <laughs> yeah. To be over I've lost... Gone. So this case was requested by Chloe Bridger. And I recognise that name. I felt like Chloe had requested another case before, but searched through our notes and our research and i just couldn't find it so if you have requested one before chloe welcome to your second episode if you haven't welcome to your first episode yeah 100 percent pattern record yeah absolutely so it is of course the case of john george haig the acid bath murderer also known as the vampire horror man of london that's a terrible name yeah or the vampire horrors of london and also known as the killer con man the Killicon Man. I yeah. prefer Acid Bath Murderer. The Acid Bath Murderer, yeah. It's a throwback, actually, to my parents' weekly murder, zi- murder design. There he is. Episode six, The Acid Bath Murders. Looks quite six, a- though. Yeah. That's, Getting uh, him in early doors. Yeah. yeah. Ah, 79. Mm. So, you know. If anyone would like to borrow it, let me know. If not, eBay. They're great things on eBay, and uh, they can be found on there. How much do they go for on eBay, you think? Some of the bigger cases go for, like, £3.50. I was expecting a lot more. Yeah, but some people sell them in bundles as well. Like mm. You can get like the first 25 for like a tenner. So Again, a lot less than expected. Yeah, yeah. So And they're good quality. We've had a little rummage through some of them. So there you go. I'm so, expecting yeah. this case to be... I mean, obviously we'll close it in the research as well, but with that, I'm expecting yeah. fucking big things. Yeah, good. Big old things. Yeah. Like, whoa. Yeah. I could see into your soul then. Yeah. Yeah, you mean it. You're going to make a splash this week, boy. Big time, big time. And let's let's hope this splash doesn't get over you because we're talking about acid this week and I'd hate to burn you. So this case as well, also, it, it was in the run-in for um, the final episode of our Spooky Stories series, but we went with the Axeman of New Orleans instead. Mm. So I'm happy to be covering this case eventually. He also went to the same private school as Stephen Griffiths. Do you remember we covered the, the crossbow cannibal yes. uh, a few weeks back or a few oh. months back? We talked about he went to a private school. John George Haig was born on the 24th of July, 1909, to Protestant Christian couple John Haig Sr. So I've got another John Sr. I can't remember when we last did a John Sr. And Emily Haig. And he was born in Lincolnshire. And his brother William. Very good. The trio would later move to Wakefield, West Yorkshire, in England, where John would be raised. His mother, Emily, had John at the age of 40, uh, so they would kind of consider him as a bit of a miracle baby. And this would be the only child that the pair go on to have. She should be a geriatric mother. I think you consider a geriatric mother just like even mid-30s. Yeah, well... So she'd be more than that, if there is more than that. John Jr. uh, was regarded as a bit of a miracle baby. Miracle Jr. John Sr. We definitely don't have John Sr. Maybe it was John Casey's doesn't really i think it was john feel like it was so the couple struggled financially for a while before the birth of their son due to john senior losing his job a few months before their child was born the family was extremely religious and their son would be scared into following the same faith as his parents so john senior basically told john jr the reason he had a blue mark along his forehead was because he had sinned in a previous life what was the real reason i don't know what kind of mark was it it was a blue mark yeah but like an action man scar, I imagine. An action man scar. Yeah, like just a straight blue mark. 
Or maybe it was a veiny blue looking one. What's an action man scar? Just a straight like on the cheek. Oh. Do you never used to have action man? No. Oh, I'd loads. You could have borrowed some. Ah, that's right. Okay. But um interesting. Blue mark. Yeah. So he's convinced him about what you do in your current life will impact your afterlife. Uh, John, do you want a fun fact? Ooh. Please. A healing scar turned blue is when you develop a scar where a major vein lies. And the scar appears purple at first, but turns blue. I knew what you'd do. What was I doing? Oh, God, it's out. <laughs> Don't get in. John Jr. was told that if he did not want to be brandished as a sinner, he would have to obey all the rules they set out and follow his faith with the utmost diligence. One of John Sr.'s common phrases was, it is a sin to be happy in this world. That's a horrible way to live your yeah. life. Yeah. Live your life sad. But at least I'm going to heaven. What? That makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. It is a sin to be happy in this world. Yeah. So John Sr. convinced John Jr. that his mother could not be branded as she was an angel. Laying it on thick for young John. Mm. John did not have many friends, which was a consequence of his perpetual fear of other people. John was told by his parents that being associated with people who were not religious would result in him sinning and thus getting a Fucking same scar. hell. It's like, John, the reason why this food tastes like shit is because you eat nice food. You're going to hell. It's like, just let the boy have a bit of fun. Let the boy live. Yeah. Yeah. To reinforce this, John was made to run home every day after school so that he would spend as little time as possible in the outside world. It's, it's horrible, isn't it? This poor bastard. Yeah, yeah. It would appear from the outside that any form of pleasure would equate to sinning in the eyes of the Hague family. No sports were allowed to be played, no books other than the Bible were allowed to be read, and it is clear that the parents sheltered their child from the outside world mentally, but they physically constructed a fence around the outside of their home that was so tall John was not able to interact with the sinners within the neighbourhood. So they are literally and mentally shielding him yeah i mean imagine if you're a little boy a normal fence six foot fence you're not going to be seen over it but yeah that's baffling i'm surprised he's not homeschooled to be fair i i was fairly surprised this part gets a little bit interesting and i'm surprised we haven't had this ever before on a previous case exclusive so whilst all this is going on from an early age john jr began to consume his own urine why are you surprised that no one's done that before? Because, I mean, we've, we've covered a lot of cases and apparently mm. this is a... Well, basically, people who are fascinated by consuming their own urine or feces are typically sexually aroused by humiliation or embarrassment. Surely Albert Fish did some I, of this. I, would, I wouldn't be surprised. I think he drank, he drank other people's piss. He liked to leave some hanging, didn't he? Some like, hanging. Yeah, he liked to leave Albert Fish. When he was renting various rooms, he left a big pile of piss. poop. Last week's case, uh, the Black Panther. Yeah. Nappy. More of a shit talker than a piss drinker. But, uh, yes, yes. But yeah, okay. But it hasn't, yeah. So he was drinking his own piss because... Basically, from a very early age, he was aroused by humiliation and embarrassment and felt fascinated by it... fluids that came through his body. So that's... Can you humiliate yourself to yourself? Yes. Yeah. Can you? Yeah. Drinking your own piss in a room by yourself... Are you sitting there going, I feel humili- humiliated? I think you are. This is Maybe if you wash it, down, wash it down with a mud pie afterwards. But yeah. I don't think you can. I'm not saying that I wouldn't sit there going, I'm proud of this. <laughs> but you just wouldn't, I, I don't know. He was, he was 
very, very fascinated by fluids, which will be a running theme um, as he grows older. So John uh, detested his religion due to the way that it forced him to live. So as he's starting to get older, he's starting to have his own thoughts and feelings. He was a child being treated like an inmate in solitary confinement. As John Jr. laid in bed at night and closed his eyes, the anxiety he had felt throughout the day would manifest in his dreams. And this is like when I first heard about this, I was like, it's it's kind of a shame we're not doing a main channel episode on this because Phil's animation, I just could see mm. it when I when I heard this. So every night when John went to sleep, he would dream that he was surrounded by a forest of crucifixes Ooh. with blood raining down on him from the sky. Suddenly, the crucifixes would become trees again, but they would seep with blood. And whilst all this was happening, a man would appear, taking drops of blood from each tree as he walked closer As he inched closer and closer to John, he would slowly reach out his hand that was grasping the cup filled with the blood of the dying trees. John would be forced to swallow every gulp of the blood until he would wake up in a sweat and panic, coming to the brutal reality that he could not escape his life, even in his dreams. Yes, powerful, isn't it? Yeah, for such a young boy, he's not even 10 years old at this point. He's having very vivid, religiously inspired nightmares. Wake up in a cold sweat, grab a... Glass of piss. Yeah, oh, wow. is it a glass of piss? You're not thinking he's just laying down and sort of waterfalling it. Waterfalling it. Yeah. Uh, I assumed he wasn't pissing directly in his own mouth. Fresh from he's the not, source. Not Bam Margera, but um, <laughs> I thought it was a cup or a glass. Like, he liked that. I got him. It could have done. It's very messy. But not if you get. Yeah, but well, just when you finish it, yeah. And start. It goes straight away. For... Well, if he did it enough times, that sounds like you've done it. I don't know. It really does. I kind of want to try it now so that I can show you how. You really got me good, then. <laughs> Fresh from the source. <laughs> Plus then you've got to wash the glass up. You have to wash the piss off the floor. <laughs> That's more the... Str- yeah, lick it up. Wash the glass. Lick it up. Well, him, you him. are a dirty Him, bastard. him. So despite, obviously, the hideousness he would face during the daytime mm. and then the nightmares he would face during the nighttime, despite this particular lifestyle, John was academically gifted. He was instructed to play the piano from a young age, which was another thing he did not enjoy. However, John would later learn to love the piano and he would become very interested in classical music. Due to his academic and musical talents, John would earn a scholarship to many local schools. He accepted a scholarship from Wakefield Cathedral, where he would undergo training to become a choir boy. I didn't know they had training. Choir boys, yeah. Well, like vocal, they do a bit of vocal stuff, but training, yeah. Do they you have to train your voice to become a yeah a oh. standard? Sorry, that's ignorant of That's right. me. Play like you, when you play the drums, you practice, right? Yeah. Some singers just sing though; they're gifted, and they just go off and most singers make millions. Will have had vocal training. Choir boy, I thought it was like yeah, I guess a school choir. Even the school, a shitty school choir will practice. Yeah. Training, I just, the word training probably threw me. Although he may have played the part of an innocent child, at around the age of 10, John decided to test the boundaries of his religion. John started to lie and read books other than the Bible. And when he realised that he had sinned, according to his father's rules, nothing happened in return. He began to question everything that he had been taught by his father. No veins appeared, no blue scars, no issues at all. He concluded either there was a God and he didn't care about John or that there was no God at all. 
John became bitter and angry as a result of this. Not only had he spent his childhood um, very, very sheltered, but it had also, he felt as though it had all been a lie and Mm -hmm. his parents had lied to him. So John conjured up a plan and decided that the first opportunity he had to leave the church, he would flee. And in the meantime, John also realized he could trick the people around him. So he's, he's an intelligent young lad and he starts to play various people for fools. And that's something that we'll again see in his later years. He felt that uh, people had wronged him by lying to him. As he felt that they had done this to him, he felt he had justification to become lazy. John would act like he was working and reading at school, but in fact he was looking like the ideal student whilst doing nothing at all. This is a practice that John would take into his career path. He became an apprentice for a garage but left for two clear reasons. John could be described as a germaphobe. It has been reported that uh, John would consistently wash his hands and would always wear gloves to avoid contamination on his hands. The garage was a place full of dirt and he could not stand this being all over his hands. The second, more prominent reason for him not enjoying uh, working in the garage is that he was not able to put up the facade of working with such a manual job. So he felt he he was above it. Therefore, John moved to a new job where he could do minimal work. He became a salesman. Which I wouldn't say it was minimal work. Yeah, that's so commission that's based. Hard, that's hard graft, though, isn't it? Job Depends ki- what you're selling. Very true. Bubble wrap, homemade lemonade. Oh, fresh from the source. <laughs> door to door. Mm. Uh, where's, the, where's the lemonade then? Oh well. The job of a salesperson uh, came with ease to John. He could look like he was making calls and taking orders without doing so, and he also found that he had a fascination with manipulating people. John got excited when a customer who had no interest in buying the product changed their mind due to what John considered his charismatic and persuasive nature. Due to the pleasure he would get from people being coerced into buying his products, John started to enjoy this job. He worked himself up in the company and became friends with those who were also higher up. However, this would take a turn when John became greedy in his efforts to make money. Happens to us all. A tin filled with wads of cash was kept in one of the main offices. I don't know why they keep all the company's money in a tin. So for some reason, there was a tin filled with wads of cash that was kept in one of the main offices. And as there was such a high amount of cash in the particular tin, John theorized that if he took small amounts every now and then, he could make extra money without doing the work. And he was correct for a little while. Nobody noticed, but people started to grow suspicious and realised money was suddenly disappearing. Although the company did not want to believe this was one of their best workers stealing from them, they knew he had to be let go. And as a result, John George Haig was fired from the sales job. Being jobless and without a reliable source of income, John was stranded. And in his mind, he could not restart the game of life again and would do anything to avoid this from happening. So as a result, John decided to start his own company, which I think, again, that takes a lot of time, effort, thought. Thank you. Um, you're welcome. Congrats, Dan. Thank you. Congrats, boys. In a way. Thank you. In a way. <laughs> as a result of starting his own company, John made the decision to move back in with his parents whilst he began to lay the foundations of his new business. Dan, what do you think of the new businesses? Piano tuner. So he's a charming guy, doesn't really want to work hard, won't do any manual labour. So maybe piano tuner. Piano tuning is hard. Yeah, no, Dusty, doesn't like to get his hands messy. Keyboard tuner. Um, well, guess Energy it. drinks. Oh. I think he is selling Windows. 95. 98. 98. 
So basically, it was a it was a sales company that he started up with a business partner. However, within weeks of the business starting, the sales partner took ill and wasn't able to kind of continue. So again, highly frustrating for for John at the time. But at the same time, he did、uh, kind of again change his plans when he met a wealthy twenty one year old Beatrice Hammer. So Beatrice was taken in by the charming man who was well groomed and would not be seen in anything less than a suit. And within four months of meeting each other, the pair were engaged and married. The newlywed couple managed to find their own place, and this was once again an opportunity for John to leave the tight grip of his parents and their imposing religion behind. I mean, he moved back in with them. He made that choice, yeah, and he could see over the fence by this、mm. you know, this time. So one day in the couple's new home, John was reading a newspaper article about a man who had recently devised a plan to scam car dealerships. So this man would basically buy cars on finance using false names. He would then, upon the first payment being due, not pay anything because he'd used a false name. So by using a false identity, the man was able to get the car for the initial deposit and drive away without the car company being able to trace and therefore collect the rest of the money owed on the finance purchase. John took inspiration from reading about this scheme and decided to copy it, thinking that he could do it without ever being caught. John then put into motion this scheme and did it several times until he was eventually charged with fraud and sentenced to serve 15 months in prison. Fraud transit.、Oh, not bad. During this time,、uh, his wife Beatrice fell pregnant with a little girl, which results in her giving her up for adoption, which really bothered John. Even though Beatrice was wealthy, she could not financially look after another life on her own whilst her husband was in prison. Furthermore, Beatrice undergoes the procedure to file for divorce as she cannot trust the man she has married anymore. In addition to this, John is disowned by his parents. They basically couldn't believe that their their precious only child had turned to a life of sin. So John spends his time in prison.、Um, interestingly, actually, he run a scheme in in prison as well. He he basically. Ended up running a scheme because he was significantly smarter than a lot of the other inmates、mm. in there. He basically worked his way up to be given the role of postmaster, so he'd be delivering people's post, but he would hold their mail for ransom. Oh wow! Yeah, he'd he'd build up a, a bit of a bad reputation for that. Didn't make many friends, but in any case, he earned money whilst he was in prison. And at the age of twenty six, he is released. His parents, despite disowning him, allow him to return to the family home on one condition: they must see an active change in him to show he is repenting for his actions. I've just started watching Breaking Bad again. So good, so so good. Already the acid bath thing. Yeah, and also Jesse going back to the family home. Yeah. Some、yeah, little correlations there, boy. Yeah, yeah. The acid bath murders, bitch, batch, batch. Yo, Mr. White, batch. Jesse, Jesse, Skyler, Jesse, Skyler. Turn over, Skyler. Jesse, I've got the, I've got the Skyler. <laughs> Where's the money? So they let him return to the family home, and Emily and John Senior help in these efforts to see their son change, as they offer him a sum of money which John can use to set up a new business with his、Ooh. friend. So this is a different business partner. However, it's it follows a very similar and unfortunate theme. Their business was going to be a laundrette. Maybe John was actively trying to wash away his sins. Love that. Yeah, thank you, Chloe. However, this is a short-lived dream as his business partner dies. After being hit by a car. Oh fuck! Maybe、so、one of the ones that he stole. Feeling like the world was turning against him, John decided to move to East London in 1936 in search of a new, slightly more hopeful life. Bearing in mind he's got a 
biological daughter somewhere in the country as well,、mm. but he never got to meet her. So whilst in search for this this new opportunity, he would meet William McSwan, who William once, McSwan, William McSwan, I'm William McSwan. Good to, good day, sir. So here he would meet William McSwan, who, unbeknownst to him, would become John's first victim. So William Douglas McSwan was the son of Donald and Amy McSwan, a wealthy couple with a high reputation. When William and John become good friends, John is asked by Donald and Amy to be their personal chauffeur and mechanic. As the pair owned a few theme parks that needed maintenance. Jeez, that's a、yeah. stretch. I mean, he didn't, he didn't even get on in the、uh, yeah. mechanics. I mean, he's probably just said, "I worked in the garage for a bit." I've done that. I can fix your roller coaster, love. <laughs> Pop it open. Oh, there's your problem, darling. <laughs> John saw this as the perfect chance to scam another group of people. But when John realised the group had all become friends, John valued their friendship more than another garage. Garage. Garage quack scam. <laughs> John valued their friendship more than another get-rich-quick scheme. So yeah, interesting. He's got some sort of moral compass. Doesn't want to scam his friends. I'd, I'd enjoy working as personal chauffeur or as a theme park mechanic. Both same time. Yeah, personal chauffeur. I don't know. I once met two people who designed、uh, all the Alton Towers rides, which I thought、wow. was quite an interesting、uh, job. Smiler, like Oblivion, and the Oblivious the Smiler. Was, was Smiler Alton Towers?、Uh, yeah, I think、uh, so. Pretty sure it was. Oh, actually, yeah, yeah. They were doing a podcast in ta- in London, and they weren't allowed to talk about the smiler. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh wow.、Mm. A guy's just built a house in my village that does the、uh, layout of all the Aldi supermarkets. Not as exciting. Not as exciting. No, no, no. but it's still similar. Not similar. Kind of though.、Uh, so the friendship. The lay- uh, Surely the- it's just sprints and repeat.、Uh, ma- magical middle aisle. Is always in the middle. To be fair, yeah, yeah.、Uh, who knows? It's a nice house. This、least. one, we're going to be bakery on the right. No, that's just that's insane. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> so the friendship、uh, that that John valued so much was brilliant, but John still required some money. One thing about John is that he does not give up easily. So John invented another scheme to make money on the side. This time round, he decided that he would open a solicitor's office with the name of an already well-known solicitor's office. Okay. His cover story was that he was a new branch of the existing company, and、smart. soon, yeah, he's smart, yeah, and soon customers like ro- Subways, the sandwich shop, yeah, all the same name. Subways. Yeah, Subway. Oh, okay. So you're like, oh, I can make the same sandwich from here as I can over there. That's his plan. It's kind of yeah, it's kind of similar. So soon, customers. Rolled in and would pay their fees, trusting their money was going to the right company. As soon as John felt he had collected enough money, he would close the branch and move to another part of the country to scam unsuspecting people with the same opportunity. He fooled the people of London, Guildford, which is Ivan Mila, Guildford, Guildford, and Hastings. So the listeners are scam artists anyway. To be honest, the, 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 the fees that they charge, yeah, and the time they take. I put it in this office because a hundred quid. Does it? We might have some solicitors that are patronies though, and you do great work and probably prompt ahead of schedule. If you've you anything like the ones I've dealt with, sitting on your fucking hands. Although John felt this was still not enough money. <laughs> exactly. I'm sure. I'm sure you're great. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Rory and Kid here from the award-winning podcast, This Paranormal Life. Every week we investigate a paranormal story and decide if it's real or a hoax. Like the time a guy claimed he punched Bigfoot. Or when a UFO showed up at a football game in front of thousands of people. Each episode has sound effects, music, and storytelling that feels so real, you'll never sleep again. You will. Stop it. You're going to scare away new listeners. Check out This Paranormal Life every Tuesday, wherever you listen to your podcasts. John basically felt this was uh, still not enough money, so he moved on to publishing adverts in newspapers for stocks at significantly reduced rates. His cover story this time was that these shares came from those who were deceased and therefore they were able to sell at such a low rate. Of course, none of these stories or stocks were true, but this did not stop John from earning £200,000 from his endeavours. Shit the bed. However, as with a pro... Give me a spoon. However, as with any pro, there is always a con. And John was sent to prison for four years as somebody discovered he had spelled Guildford as Guildford without the D. So Guildford as... As it sounds, basically, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so he spelled Guildford... Without the D. Yeah. Yeah, so that's how he got caught. Age 28, he was behind bars once again. So basically, um, he would only serve three quarters of his sentence and was released a year early due to World War II. So during this time, prisoners that basically committed petty, what was considered petty mm. crimes were released to help with the war effort. And as a result of this, he became a fireman. And again, someone didn't want to get their hands dirty, graft. That's not the right job for mm. him, I would have thought. So he moved back to East London and became a fireman. Yet this ended a few months later when Hay finds himself back in prison. And there are numerous different reports as to how this uh, happened, whether it was fraud, theft, or ending up in, you know, via another activity. Either way, the likelihood is that money was involved in some, in some sort. Uh, so he's back in prison. This new stint in prison now, and we talked about this similarities with Stephen Griffiths they went to the same school this particular prison had a vast collection of true crime books within its library mm. so this seemed like uh, well uh, a recipe for disaster because when John did his research he was also at the same time researching a collection of UK law books that would out enable him to basically pass his spare time but also find a way to get out of his sentence quicker he researched loopholes within the UK laws which led him to stumble across the saying corpus delecti which basically translated to without a physical body or evidence nobody can be charged with a crime mm. he also found books on george alexander Serret, who was a french serial killer who killed his victims and placed their bodies into tubs of acid to make them disappear mm. chloe says worst magician ever he was sentenced to death by guillotine for his crimes so during uh, this this other stint of prison, he earned the trust of the prison guards and those who were well-behaved enough were rewarded to do jobs around the prison, such as cooking, cleaning, or lending a helping hand in the workshop. So John worked in the workshop as he wanted to go and experience working with metal and crafting metal for the prison. This was the first step in his gruesome experiment, as inside the workshop there was the vital ingredient that John needed, sulfuric acid. 
prison workshop, mm. sulfuric acid. So John was able to steal a small glass of acid, and that was step one complete. Step two was asking uh, other inmates who were basically working in the gardens and, and, and the grounds of the prison to gather a collection of mice. I think it's been mice. Yeah. yeah. So once this was complete, he placed varying quantities of acid into flasks and then placed mice to see how much acid he needed to, mm. to dissolve a live mouse. So basically, yeah, he would hang mice by their uh, tails. tails and watch them essentially dissolve to death. It's Perish. Hideous, hideous. Mm. But what he noticed is that watching the solid turn into a liquid aroused him. He oh. became enthralled by this. It took him back. Turned on by dissolving mice. Yeah. Very niche. Yes. Darling, um, can we try something tonight? What? <laughs> Hold this bottle. Oh, pick, put it away. <laughs> Trying to piss in the bottle. Nah. Uh, mice. Yeah. So he would dangle the mice over the flask and he enjoyed with pleasure uh, the mice basically squirming as they fought for their lives. He noted that it took 30 minutes to dissolve a full mouse. And it's here that John's fascination with acid would develop and grow, giving him the infamous name, the Acid Bath Killer. So, aged 43, John is released from prison once again. And with no loving wife, child or house to go home to, he resorts to living with his parents once again. Jeez, I bet they hated that. I bet he hated that as well. Guys, I'm back. <laughs> Why have you got three mice on your shoulder? And a hard on. With no income, he picks up a job as a salesman once again. One night after work, John decides to frequent the local pub when he bumps into his old pal, William McSwan. Oh, that's how long's it been? Let me get you a, an old jar. The pair cannot believe they haven't seen each other in so long, and after a long chat, decide to start meeting up again. It's like John had never left for prison. However, as much as the pair are friends, John cannot release the anguish he has for William, basically around the fact that William is everything John wants to be. Wealthy, mm. successful, happy, stable. And it's at this point that John begins to plot William McSwan's murder. So being able to save money from his job, John begins renting both an apartment in East London as well as a basement in Kensington. This basement would become John's workshop, being registered as a union engineering company. The only union going on down there was the number of bodies that piled up. Chloe? Wow. The workshop looked as one would expect. It had a wooden workbench with saws, hammers and other tools. There are some really gruesome pictures of the workshop, so we'll pop those up for the people that like the visual episodes. Oh, yeah. That's disgusting. Yeah. Stay there. Look you know, at this, Tom. I thought it was germaphobe. So John also had a number of oil-tight water drums, which could contain up to 45 litres of liquid. Mm. John was a clever man. He knew that to contain the quantity of acid that he needed, he would have to contact chemical sale companies. As John was registered as the director of an engineering company, and I assume that his criminal record wasn't public, this was not deemed as a strange request, and so they sent him deliveries with small amounts. He was able to collect this over time, and he had enough after several weeks to dissolve one human body. Kind of like kind of Arnest, Brenda's... Arnest Brenda, Arnest Brenda, yeah, yeah with yeah. the... Um, Manure. With the farm, yeah. So in September of 1944, William and John uh, remain in contact. McSwan asks John if he would assist in fixing some pinball machines at one of the theme parks the family owned. John sees this as the perfect opportunity to invite his friend to visit his new workshop. So basically they're bringing down this pinball machine together, they're going down into the basement, it's, it's all, all above board and below floor. And when they arrive, John is taken to the basement where he is struck over the head with a lead pipe and is beaten to death. His pockets were emptied of any money, checks or valuables that John could then sell. 
Imagine he kept the pinball machine. Once John knows for sure that McSwan is dead, he decides that he is a little parched and he goes to his local pub for a drink. Once he is done there, John is still quite thirsty and he decides to cut the throat of William and fill up a glass with the blood of his deceased victim. Wow. John recalled how he downed it all but was anxious whilst doing so. Probably necked it. Yeah. Whilst he is doing this, he is reminded of the nightmares he experienced as a child. Perhaps now they were prophecies for the future. Mm. John must be careful at this point. He has seen firsthand how strong the acid can be. He puts on a raincoat, rubber gloves, some thick boots and a leather apron, being cautious not to spill his precious acid. John pours it into the oil drum. This is the last thing John remembers before he woke up on the floor. He realises he must have fainted from the fumes and must rectify this issue before he kills again. More acid is poured into the drum. He puts William McSwan's full body into the drum and then tightens the lid whilst saying farewell to William McSwan. Bye, William. So when the morning comes, he goes back over to his workshop to find a sludge is all that remains of William McSwan. Oof, William McSludge. He leaves the body for a couple more days to make sure that all of his remains had dissolved. And when he is sure that there is no trace left of McSwan, he pours the sludge into the drain in the shadows of the night. Clean the pipes, isn't it? Fucking hell. So worried and anxious that they had not heard from their son, the parents of William McSwan ask John if the pair had met up. John lies and tells the concerned family that their son has fled to Scotland for fear of being drafted into World War II. So I've always had this pinball machine. <laughs> This did seem genuine to the family, as William had already expressed his apprehension about the war. So John and the McSwan family stayed in touch, telling them that basically basically what he did was say, look, he's hiding in Scotland, I know where he is, but for fear of sharing this information, let's just leave it with me. He's given me his checkbook, he's given me his pinball machine, but he's in hiding. But what I wanted to know is how has John not been drafted? Hmm. Don't know. So John and the McSwans stayed in touch, but what he also did here was basically inform them that William needed money. The McSwan family did not deliberate and gave John the money right away in the hopes that it would reach their son. So first of all, he's cashing in money from the parents, but he's also got all of a now dead McSwans checkbooks, valuables, hmm. identity, so he can also make purchases based on a dead man but is receiving money from the parents of the dead man. So he's got, he's got financial gain. So he's very, very wealthy now at this point. When they realised that their son was not coming home, the McSwans offered John William's old job of collecting debts for the family after he had mentioned that his funds were low. As well as owning three theme parks, William McSwan also owned a number of houses around London mm. that, that they rented out. So he, they would basically let John collect the money from them. So John also would go on to collect William's pension and any outstanding checks so that he could fund the gambling he was partaking with every night. So he was bringing in money, but he wanted that was still not enough for him, so he started gambling with the money he was bringing in. He noticed that his dreams were coming true, and he basically, the person that he had envied in William McSwan, he basically now became his, all of his identity. Yeah. He's in with their families. They've given him a job. He's taking their money, you know. However... John's desire for death did not end with one victim. The McSwans had been like parents to him, but they had to disappear as John knew they would eventually conclude something had happened to their son. Before they could be murdered, John brought a gas mask to stop the fumes from making him faint. He had two people to kill this time. Passing out was not an option. He also concluded that a steel bathtub would be far better for dissolving the bodies so that he could watch the bodies snap, crackle and pop. 
The first time round, there were some lumps in the sludge, and this did not, f- as there was basically lumps in the fluid. He's a fluids guy, Tom. He doesn't yeah, like solids. Doesn't like fluids. Pulp, no. Yeah. So as this did not fully satisfy his corpus delicti thoughts, all he had to do now was get the bodies into a, a full-sized iron bathtub so they could watch it all dissolve. So all he had to do now was lure the McSwans into his basement. Bread. John told the couple that their son had returned home for one night in July of 1945 and that he was very eager to see them. But there was only one condition. They had to obey the rules he laid out for them to avoid people knowing he was in the area. The rules were as follows. They had to meet at John's house prior to seeing him. It had to be during the night and they couldn't tell anybody that he was back or that he had left in the first place. They also had to enter the room separately in order to see him. They viewed the request as quite strange, but at the same time, they desperately wanted Mm. to see their son and they thought it was for his own well-being, so they went along with it. How wrong could they be? So Donald, the father, was first led into the basement and he was killed in exactly the same manner as his son. He was beaten over the head with a lead pipe and then checked for any valuables. His limp, lifeless body was then carried over to the bathtub and John would proceed to go for Amy next. It is unknown whether she saw her husband's dead body before she was struck over the head, but it is known that John felt excitement whilst tallying his victims up to number three. John himself said, When I first discovered there were easier ways to make a living than to work long hours in an office, I did not ask myself whether I was doing the right or wrong thing. He later added, This is what I wish to do. However, John took a change with the dismantling of his victims this time round. Unlike their son, John decided to dissect the bodies this time round and he added hydrochloric acid into the concoction to help with the extra corrosion of the multiple bodies. The acid mix was poured over the couple and they were left alone for days to become a mush whilst John was collecting their property and assets. So he's got three family, three of the McSwans dead. He's collecting all of their assets. He's very, very wealthy at this point, but it doesn't stop there. John was a convincing liar, and he told the McSwan's landlord that the pair had decided to travel to America for a while, leaving him in charge. Flown the nest. He even managed to convince their lawyers with this story, and as a result, all of their assets were signed over to him. They're on holiday. <laughs> he even was cocky enough to pose as William. Oh. So that could be why he uh, had their assets signed over. Through this scheme, John was able to make an additional £200,000, which is again something that would he would use to go on to fund his life of gambling. Through the vast wads of cash that John was making, he was able to rent a room at the Onslow Court Hotel, which looks very fancy. This was a place full of wealthy widows and elites. This was an excellent place for John until the money started to run out once again. His lavish lifestyle could not be funded anymore, and three years after murdering the McSwans, he needed more. John even resorted to selling the basement to make money. Once again, scam businesses were created, yet these people did not provide him with the bursts of money he knew he could make from another murder, and so he had to find another basement fast. Luckily for him, he found one in Crawley, West Sussex, and his activities could resume. He's also collecting like rent money. How is that not enough for him to live? Multiple Shit properties. Gambler. Yeah, well, there, there is that. It was around this time that John would meet 49-year-old Archibald and his wife Rose Henderson. And when Rose mentioned that the pair were having a housewarming party for their new house and they would like John to come and play the piano, John dutifully agreed. John agreed to play the piano at their housewarming party and he knew at this point that they were his next two victims. He brought two new oil drums as well as another batch of sulfuric acid. Yet the murder could not be committed until John had earned the trust of the couple. 
He played at the party, and when he noticed Archibald had a vast gun collection, one where he would not notice if a small revolver went missing. The revolver was taken the next time John came to the house. He was becoming good friends with the couple, spending large amounts of time with each other at the races and various dinner parties. With this time being spent together, it was not suspicious when a group trip to Brighton was suggested. So the group heads up to Brighton in February of 1948, where John conveniently piques the interest of Archibald when mentioning he had a new invention. Archibald had to see this invention right away. It was all he could think about, whilst all John could think about was what his friend's body would look like bubbling away. John and Archibald immediately drive back to Crawley so that John can unveil his plans. When the two arrive at John's new workshop, whilst Archibald is barely through the door, John shoots him in the back of the head with his own revolver. And like the others, his body is searched of any valuables and anything that he does find is taken to be sold. John knew he didn't have as much time to dismember the body as Rose was still waiting down in Brighton. The bleeding body is dunked into the acid and left to corrode whilst John drives back to Rose. When John arrives in Brighton, he tells Rose that her husband has fallen desperately ill back home in Crawley and that she must come to comfort her husband. Of course, she jumps into the car not knowing that she was taking the journey towards her death. When Rose rushes to be by the side of her husband, she is shot in the head, meeting a gruesome end. And like her husband, her body is ransacked of any valuables and the sulfuric concoction is poured over her body. She was by her husband's side, just not in the way she had hoped. John had a new place to pour away his sins. The back of the workshop had a yard by its side. So whilst John is getting rid of the sludge mm. um, of Archibald and uh, Rose, the owner of the land begins to question why his plants are suddenly dying and notices a foul smell coming from the various drainage. The items stolen from Archibald and Rose are sold for £200 to a pawn shop and it is at this point John remembers he must pay for the hotel rooms the group was meant to stay in. He drives back to Brighton and pays for the room, also making sure to collect the valuables left in the Henderson's room. Again, with these items holding value to John, he sells them to a pawn shop. John even manages once again to transfer all of their assets over to himself, and when Rose's concerned brother asks where she was, he replied casually, saying she was over in South Africa having an abortion. Very specific. Very, very specific. Lord. Being a religious family, Rose's brother would not bring such shame on his sister and would continue the cycle of lies telling anyone who asked about Rose that she was on holiday. So I guess that's kind of smart from John, but it's very, very specific, isn't it? Throughout all of this, he seems to be very self-assured and very confident and he gets away with it. But like the charming con man who murdered for greed is, is the little title on here. Yeah, so it, it is, all adds up. It does add up, mate. So from the assets signed over to him, John made a further 200,000... It's a figure that keeps coming up, mm. a lot of 200,000 pounds. And he even got the company of the Henderson's dog, who he kept for a brief period of time. So once again, he's got money, mm -hmm. he's got security, mm -hmm. but he's got a really bad gambling habit. It must be fucking bad. If it's yeah. 2,000... Every time it's free, this is the third... This is 600,000 pounds he's now accrued. And that was in their money, their time, or this? It was in today's money. Oh, today's money. Okay. Still a lot. Yeah, still. After inheriting this £200,000 from his, from his latest victims, he manages to somehow burn through that money in little less than a year. And he actually burnt through it to the point that he became indebted to the Onslow Court Hotel, meaning that another life had to go. So Olive Durand Deacon would be John's confirmed last victim. She was a widower and a resident of the Onslow Court Hotel. Olive had inherited her money after her husband, John Durand Deacon, a wealthy solicitor, passed away. 
Olive seeked companionship within John, especially after she had manufactured a new idea for a false nail company. She knew John was a craftsman and wished for his help to make her idea come to life. But to make fake nails? Yeah. yeah well, what can't he do? Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah, and when, when, when I read that first time through, I thought she was a fraudster as well. Oh, false, false nails. nails. <laughs> but I'm just silly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just silly. Um, so John based on this, yeah. could not resist such an easy murder. He invited her to his workshop on the 18th of February 1949, and before Olive could look at the plans for her new investment, which I'm sure weren't even drawn up, mm. she is shot like the Hendersons. Although her valuables are taken, he resorts back to slitting her throat and drinking the already congealing blood like his very first kill. <sighs> After killing Olive, John decides to kill his hunger, he takes a casual stroll to a local cafe where he eats poached eggs on toast with a cup of tea. That's fair. A quote from John. I... A quote from John. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's all right, idiot. You... <laughs> you bloody rotter. So a quote from John on this one. I shot her in the back of the head. Then I fetched a drinking glass and made an incision in the side of the throat and collected a glass of blood from which I drank. This was not a murder. This was a killing which I had a mission to perform. It was a murder. It was absolutely a murder. Yeah. He engages in conversation with the cafe owner for around an hour before heading back to the workshop. And Eat a good eggs. Huh? <laughs> Are these swan eggs? Why? So we killed a family of swans earlier. So he spends about an hour chatting in the cafe before heading back and pouring acid over Mrs. Deacon's lifeless body. John was a bit messy with this murder and there were visible blood specks on Olive's coat, meaning it could not be sent to the pawn shop right away. John took it to the dry cleaners before taking the coat and the rest of the items to the pawn shop. This money was enough to pay off his debt at the hotel. However, John made a stupid error. Any guesses, boys? Ooh, um, he... Uh, he left something of his in her hotel room. Cl very close. So the error he's made is the fact that he has killed a woman from the hotel he confides at. And there are now reports that she is missing. Time is of the essence and John has to get the body dissolved as quickly as possible. He allows a couple of days for decomposition and even though she has not fully become the sludge he wished for, he must deposit it. He places her in the yard at the back of the workshop to join the Hendersons. This would go on to become a tragic mistake. People have noticed Olive is missing. She was a woman of strict routine and her friend Constance Lane is becoming increasingly worried. People start suspecting John, especially Constance, who knew Olive was last seen with him. Constantly going after him. Although he acted concerned, Constance did not fall for the act. Constance had a duty to get the police involved and John even offered to drive her to the station. Ooh. The pair travelled there together and quickly the police started their investigation. Suspicion is placed on John once again. He was a young man living in a hotel with the elderly and they were made aware he had struggled to pay his rent. He clearly wasn't like the rest of the people there. Due to this, the police decide to run a background check on John and within an hour they find out about his criminal history and also about his workshop in Crawley. The police immediately go to the workshop where they are shocked to find the gas masks, the acid baths, the revolver and the receipt from the dry cleaning company for Olive's coat as well as ammunition. Why is he keeping the receipt on claiming expenses? <laughs> I think he's just a studious man. Yeah, studious. Right, um, picking him up. I think he's just a legend. <laughs> <laughs>
Due to word of mouth, the pawn shop owner tells the police he feels a customer of his may be responsible for the death of Olive. And when asked what had been pawned, the owner showed all of the jewellery which would later be identified by the family of Olive to be hers. On February 28th of 1948, John is arrested by the police and is taken to the Chelsea police station where he confesses to all the murders, believing that they will not imprison him as there are no bodies to prove the murder had ever taken place. He even goes as far as to say, I've destroyed her with acid. You'll find the sludge that remains at Leopold Road. Every trace is gone. How can you prove a murder without a body? Not only has his self-taught law lesson taught him wrong, but the police also found dentures, gallstones, part of a foot, gallstones. and human fat. John even confessed to three additional murders, but these three have not been verified, and it is believed that he did this to add to the notoriety of his killing spree. So none of his other victims were even being you know, mm. considered murdered because they all had like sort of alibis that John had given them. Soon after his arrest, the trial begins. John claims insanity due to the nightmares he had as a child returning after a car crash in the 1940s. People believe the claims of him drinking the blood of two of his victims were to help him push the insanity case, but it is highly important to note that these were parts of the story that had actually been there since before John was pleading insanity. So before yeah. he even made his plea, he'd confessed to drinking blood. The absolute callous, cheerful, bland and almost friendly indifference of the accused to the crimes which he freely admits having committed is unique in my experience, was a comment made by Sir David Maxwell Fife, a lawyer and a judge. The jury agreed with John's guilt and after deliberating for just 15 minutes, they found him guilty. John George Haig was sentenced to death and before he would eventually go on to be hanged, he made some peculiar requests. He asked to have a trial run of his execution. He also asked to meet the executioner that would be hanging him. Mm. And he also asked to meet someone from Madame Tussauds so that they could discuss a potential waxwork of him. All were denied and John was hung by Albert Pierpoint who I believe is a very infamous uh, hangman. He's the last hangman, isn't he? Yeah. His last words were, make it a large one, old boy, after being offered a brandy before his death. Oh, okay, yeah. His last words after uh, being offered a brandy before his death were, make it a large one, old boy. After his death? Fucking hell. I probably won't be thirsty. <laughs> Shortly before his death, he was basically offered a brandy, and his last words were, make it a large one, old boy. A quote from John George Hay, I experienced no remorse after killing, for I knew that I was led by a superior force. I was not aware of remorse. In fact, it would be true to say that I had no reaction at all. I was numb to it. He wanted to hang out with the hangman before he was hung. Yeah, so, some odd requests. Madame Tussauds, yeah, well, I know I, the hangman. I saw in there that there was a waxwork being made of him. Oh, that's creepy. Yeah. Interesting. You should, should look through it. <laughs> very it's a very interesting case thank you yeah. to chloe bridger for requesting it chloe for doing the research and ben for delivering it it's very yeah very intriguing and he sounds people ask us often like who you'd like to meet and i think he'd be quite interested in a dinner party oh yeah wouldn't he very from everyone that he met and he was able to win people over very very quickly mm. very good salesman but clearly just fueled completely by money we talked what was the we episode we did the other week when we were like does money make you murderous because we were asking each other it weren't we oh that's a while yeah that's a couple yeah. weeks i think but yeah. yeah a scuba diver one. scuba diver one yeah it's last week no last week's on you. but um well that's this week in present tense 
Yeah, but when this is going up, Ben. Yeah, but we're, talk- we're having the conversation now. I've done him, haven't I, Dan? Mm-hmm. No, you haven't. <laughs> yeah, I have. We're talking in Patreon timelines. No. no. Otherwise, when's it, oh, is this not a conversation not going, going in? i to chat with you. Okay, it's not going Put in. Put it in, Bonds. Makes no sense, then. Give me some confetti. So that was the case of the acid bath murderer, John George Haig. 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 Yes, no, very interesting one. A lot of sludge in that one. A lot of sludge. Thank you so much to all the old Patreonies and all the new Patreonies. Your support is very much appreciated. We appreciate you. Thank you very much. And yes, it is Ben's birthday eve tonight as we film this. But when this goes out, he'll have hit that ripe old age. Mm -hmm. Fair play to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) I'm sure it's going to be a fun year. Yeah? Yeah. Sick. That's a really big year. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Tell you what I mean. Yeah. Don't even know what it means. We're oh, doing live, aren't we, this year? Yeah. We're live in, stream. We're on no live show. Oh, we're, live we're, show. We're yeah. in the year. Yeah. Dan's keen for it. Yeah, we're up for it. We're up. Go. Yeah. So there in you go. In a week today, our producer will be a married producer. When this goes out. Yeah. When this is li- when this is live. Yeah. This, this put- ring, this finger will be taken. Look. Yeah. Bunch put a ring on it. Hey. When this goes out, Dan will be just got married. We'll probably be drunk on the dance floor. Yeah, big time. And Ben will probably be ch- chasing the bloody bridesmaids, or oh. the old, or the old lady in the corner. <laughs> That's probably more likely. You want to have a brandy, dear? Make it larger, and boy. Like, oh! <laughs> <laughs> it's just such regular piss on the dance floor. <laughs> See, you can do you it, can it. <laughs> from the sauce, Dan. From the sauce. It's like those yeah, influencers that do the hair shot when they're in the in the sea. And they dip their hair in this in this into the water, and then they fling it back really quickly, and they get the shot of the hair in the water, and it all looks like one nice. That's nothing like shape, the pissing me It's just me off. on a lilo, <laughs> not me, um, John George Haig. Anyway, anyway, like we always say, right? <laughs> we say this all the time. No, not do it from that are we? Fucking <laughs> look at the screen. And like we always say, we say this all the time. Keep doing. What are you what doing? Are you doing? What are you oh. doing? Unless. Unless it's that. Unless it's, yeah. So yeah. Forgetting your lines. Yeah. Um, Buying lots of acid and what did he, mice. What, what did they do wrong in Breaking Bad then? Did they? Oh, it was a normal bath. It wasn't a... It should have been in a certain yeah. material. Yeah. And then they went for the... Don't do that. Yeah, don't. Yeah. Don't make that. Yeah. All best. Two pip. God bless. Being a religious family, Rose's brother would not bring such shame on his sister and would kin you... Being a religious family, Rose's brother would not bring such shame... Sorry, sh- I coughed over you doing that. I, that's why I did a second one, because you coughed. Okay. Be- <laughs> Being a religious... <clears throat> you fucking rat. I generally need to clear my throat. No, you didn't, man. <laughs> no, you didn't, man. Rory and Kid here from the award-winning podcast This Paranormal Life. Every week we investigate a paranormal story and decide if it's real or a hoax. Like the time a guy claimed he punched Bigfoot or when a UFO showed up at a football game in front of thousands of people. Each episode has sound effects, music, and storytelling that feels so real, you'll never sleep again. You will. Stop it. You're going to scare away new listeners. Check out This Paranormal Life every Tuesday, wherever you listen to your podcasts. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. 
For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.